James had a nickname that you may or may not have heard of. He was called, called Old Camel Knees because there's a tradition in the church that he spent so much time through the years in prayer, on his knees in prayer, that he developed these really thick calluses because he always spent time talking to God. And you don't read far in the book of James till you realize that James was, is going to teach you and, and by the way, James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the guy that, that denied that Jesus was the Christ until Jesus was raised from the dead. When he saw the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who was his half-brother, he became a follower of Christ. So he was a doubter at first, and he became a follower. And he wrote this book, and in the book, you don't read very far in the first chapter until you realize that James is going to talk to you a lot about prayer. And James believes that prayer is the foundation for wisdom. And so he's going to teach us a whole lot about prayer. And the main thing he wants us to understand is whatever God can do, a follower of Christ can do through prayer. Jesus Christ, when he walked the earth, he told his followers after they'd seen him do all of these miracles, he said, you're going to do the same things that I've been doing. And then he says, in fact, you're going to do greater works than I have done. Now, if I had been one of the followers, I'd be, I'd be going... How in the world can you do greater things than Jesus, the Son of God? How can you do that? Well, the answer is through prayer. And so we're going to look at the, the last chapter of James today, James chapter 5, and we're going to look at several things. The first thing we're going to look at is, is when should you pray? And we're going to look at several things there. First thing is when should I pray is when I'm hurting emotionally. When I'm hurting emotionally. And we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to go through 18 eventually, but we're going to camp out a little bit here. Verse 13 says, anyone who is having trouble should pray. Now, in the Greek, it means to suffer misfortune, to be in distress. It means under tension. This is the idea that something outside of your body is causing the inside of you to be in turmoil. Your heart is broken because there's so much stress, so much stuff that you can't um, control that is just driving you crazy. It's breaking your heart. And and this this word is is a serious word. It means you are having things... So much pressure on you that you think you're going to crack. And, and there's, throughout the Old Testament, um, there, there are people of God who suffered serious circumstances that made them want to crack. One of them was King David. King David, if you, if you want to know about somebody who had troubles, David, before he became king, his best friend was Jonathan. Jonathan's dad was King Saul. King Saul became jealous of David because he knew David was going to be the next king and not his own son. And so, David's best friend's dad started chasing him around the wilderness trying to kill him. The first clue was when David was playing the harp one day and King Saul jumps up with a spear and the Bible says tried to pin him to the wall. You think you got troubles? Your best friend's dad ever tried to pin you to the wall with a spear? Your best friend's dad chased you around with armies? You got nothing but caves to hide in? You think you've had trouble? Your best friend's dad probably didn't try to kill you over and over and over again. Look what David said when he had troubles. Psalm 18.6. In my trouble, same word as this trouble in James, in my trouble I called to the Lord. I cried out to God for help. Now, you've got to always take the Bible in context. And, and what we've been doing is walking through the book of James. Just prior to this, verse 13 and verse 12, James has been talking about don't swear. And so um, it, it, he says in, in verse 12, you must not swear. Now, when you're under pressure, what's on the inside comes outside. And the reason James says don't, pray, don't swear is because you've got two choices when pressure comes to you. You can swear or you can pray. Swear or prayer, those are your two options. When you have stress on the, on the outside, you can cuss about your problems or you can pray about your problems. You can do verse 12, which is swear, or you can do verse 13, which is prayer. The choice is up to you. 
Now, in the last part of verse 13, he says, if you're happy, James 5, 13, anyone who is happy should sing praises. Have you ever noticed that circumstances in life, one minute will be up, the next minute will be down, the next minute will be up. It's like a roller coaster. James says, regardless of the circumstances of your life, if you're down in the, in the pit of despair, then, then you pray. If you're up at the top of the mountain and things are going great, then you sing praises. Do you know what our praise songs are? They're merely prayers set to music. So James says, regardless of your circumstances, the one constant is God. Down, pray. Up, sing praises. The constant is God. So you pray when you're hurting emotionally. There's a second time you pray. It's when I'm hurting physically. Verse 14. Anyone who is sick should call the church's elders. They should pray for and pour oil on the person in the name of the Lord. The word sick, the original word, means that, that you are without strength. You're totally wasted. You're totally fatigued. You're bedridden. You're unable to work. Not just acid indigestion. You don't call for the spiritual leaders of the church when you got acid indigestion. Winnie the Pooh used to say, I have a rumbly in my tumbly. It's not a rumbly in your tumbly. It's not post-nasal drip. It's not the pulled hamstring that I got last week playing football with young guys. This is the same word that was used when Lazarus got sick. If you know the New Testament, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. Lazarus got sick. What happened to Lazarus? He died. So when you're sick, he's using the same word that, that Lazarus uh, used to describe Lazarus. He was sick. He was, he, he died. This is serious, serious stuff. When you, when you're beyond the help of a doctor, then you pray. The elders are to come to you and, and the Bible says to anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, you gotta understand, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to take a couple of detours here to get back to the verse. There are three types of sicknesses in the Bible. And I wanna explain those very quickly to you. The first sickness is the sickness for death. This is on your listening guide. Sickness for death. There are some sicknesses that you will not get over. And that's because God doesn't want you to live here indefinitely. There is a sickness someday that's going to cause your heart to stop beating and you are going to go and live with God. So there are some sicknesses, and the Bible talks about this in, in 1 John 5, 16, John 11, 4. There will be some... See, if, if faith, if all it took was faith for you to get healed all the time, people with a lot of faith would never die. And that's not God's intention. God wants you eventually to come and be with Him. He wants you to leave behind a legacy, but your future is in heaven. That's why the Bible, Bible says we're aliens here. This is not our permanent home. The reason we suffer and, and people die is, is God doesn't want us to get attached to this world. Eventually, we're going to be with Him in a permanent world where there is no sickness, where He wipes away all tears. There's no pain. There's no death. Because even when Lazarus got healed, he was raised from the dead. He was more than healed. He was raised from the dead. You know what eventually happened to Lazarus again? He died because God didn't want him to live here forever. There is a sickness in the Bible that's for the purpose of taking you home. Then there's the sickness for discipline. The purpose of this sickness is covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you've ever read uh, verses 28 through 32, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, taking communion. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, which he helped establish, and he's saying, you people are jacking up the Lord's Supper. And he said, because you are so disregarding what the Lord's Supper's purpose is, some of you are sick and some of you have died. There is a purpose in sickness where sometimes your sin, God allows that to get you sick and he allows that to get your attention because I've heard lots of people say, man, when you are flat on your back in the hospital and all you have is time on your hands, you can either get, can get bet, uh, bitter or better. You get bitter and you get mad about the circumstances or some people actually lay in there and say, okay, God, you've got my undivided attention. God says, 
good. That's where I want you. There's a sickness for discipline. And then there's a sickness for the glory of God. Sometimes God allows sickness into your life for the sole purpose that He wants to heal you so that He gets the glory. And this is covered in John chapter 9. Jesus and His followers are walking along and the the followers think they have this great theological question. They see a man who was born blind. He's begging on the side of the road. And they said, "Um, Jesus, Master, Teacher, who was born blind? Who Who sinned that this man was born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And they expected because they thought everybody who, who was blind or had deformities had sinned. And Jesus said, neither. This man has been born blind for the glory of God. He walks over, heals him. Who gets the glory? God does. Now, I've got to take one more step over the side and explain that there are at least five different attitudes towards healing that are prevalent in our world today. Let me run through these real quick and we'll get back to what James has to say. The first is the sensationalist. These are the guys you see on TV. This is the attitude of, I'm going to do a big demonstration. They have tents and they have movie cameras, television cameras. They have lights and they have huge crowds and they come into stadiums. And, and you know, often the leader is flamboyant and he'll shout and, and he'll work up a sweat and he'll have a towel and he'll have people here and he'll slap them on the head and he'll yell. And sometimes, you know, there'll be catchers behind him. And now, now I'm not making fun of that, but I'm, I want to make a point here because They're very flamboyant and they say, do you feel warm? And I'm like, you're in front of 20,000 people with lights. Do you feel warm? Of course they feel warm. It's the Spirit of God flowing from me. I saw a guy one time turn around and go and blow on the person. They fell over. And and I, I don't know, I guess they, I don't know. Didn't look like healing to me. And I'm not trying to make fun of this, but here's my point. You go to Scripture and never in Scripture do you see Jesus having a healing meeting. Never do you see Him go out and put up signs and and advertise miracles. Come, get healed! Jesus never did that. Every time Jesus healed someone, He did it in private. It was always so that He could get them out of the crowd and He would listen to them, He would care for them. It was always with them, one or two people around. When Jesus healed them, then the crowd was told and everybody praised God. Nobody praised the healer. And so the Bible says that we're supposed to do this stuff in private. So that's the sensationalists. They're the confessionalists. The confessionalists say, confess it and God will bless it. They say that it is God's will for everybody to be healed. And if you're not healed, then you don't have enough faith. This is the name it and claim it group. Now, the the, the danger here is that if you are not healed, you begin to feel guilty and false... Um, False beliefs always, false doctrine always causes guilt. This is why we're, we try not to be legalistic here. When you put up a bunch of rules and regulations and, and you can't live up to the rules and regulations, you begin to feel guilty. Some of these people, if you're not healed in front of a, a television camera, you may feel guilty and say, oh, I'm making the pastors look bad. Well, it's not about the pastor anyway. It's about God. This, this group says, well, if you just claim it, you'll have it. If you need healing, you claim healing and you'll have healing. If you need a Cadillac, you claim a Cadillac and you'll have a Cadillac. If you need a good-looking woman, you claim a good... You you don't get scriptural support for that. The problem is that um, when when we start feeling guilt, the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. See, when when you become a follower of Christ, the Bible says that God's Spirit lives in you and unchange you. There is liberty, there is freedom there. 
And the problem with this name it and claim it thing is God becomes a genie. And God be- exists to serve my needs, not the other way around. Everything I read in Scripture says, I'm a servant of God. And, and there's a verse in 1 Peter that says, so if you are suffering according to God's will, what? Wait a minute. Suffering sometimes is the will of God? Yeah. Read the Bible. More often than not, followers of Christ, Jesus Christ suffered. He said, we're going to be like Him. We say that we follow Him. He's our leader. If He suffered, what makes you think you're not going to suffer? What makes me think I'm not going to suffer? There's a third group. They're called the dispensationalists. Dispensation is a period of time. That's all that means. And, and if you ever hear somebody talk about, oh, well, I'm a premillennial dispensationalist. It's a bunch of stupid words that, that all that means is he believes that, that, you know, before the millennium that there's a period of time. I mean, it just, dispensation means a period of time. The dispensationalists believe that the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture, and there's at least three passages and there's about 29 different spiritual gifts, they believe that the, the, they call them the sign gifts, the gifts of speaking in tongues, healing, miracles. They, they believe those gifts only existed for the first century. And then after the first century, they were, were gone. They were great for their time, but they served their purpose and they're no more. Problem is there is no scriptural support for that. Um, and, and you know, the, there were a lot of abuse of speaking in tongues in the Corinthian church. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Um, there's a lot of abuse of that, but nowhere does the Bible say that, that spiritual gifts cease to exist. In fact, the Bible teaches that if you're a follower of Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. The moment you come to Christ, God gives you a spiritual gift. You don't get to choose yours. As the Holy Spirit sees fit, He gives you a spiritual gift. So, the, you know, the other problem I have is in Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I don't see any scriptural support that that certain period of time, which was the first century, that these gifts existed and now they don't exist anymore. There's no scriptural support for that. There's another group that's the rationalists. They believe that all physical ailments are in your mind. That if you just think you're well, you'll be well. And really they say all your problems in life are just a matter of you thinking wrong. You need to reprogram your thinking. You think right, then everything will be right. The Christian science cult is one area that believes this. They just deny you're sick. Just deny it. Just, just sickness, you're not here anymore. I've had some sicknesses that I've denied. Didn't work. You get, you deny them long enough, you'll, you'll be in the hospital and they'll be fixing you up. They'll be doing some serious stuff to you. And then there's one last one. It's called the realist. Now there may be others, but there's five major ones. The realist. And I've, I believe James falls into this category. The realist recognizes two things. One, God has all power to heal any time. Two, not everybody gets healed. That's a realist, and I believe that's where James falls in this deal. God has the power to heal, but He doesn't heal everybody. Now, so what does James say to do when you're sick? Okay, we went through all that. Let's get back to James. He says, call on the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5, Acts 20, Titus 2 tells about how churches are set up. Basically what this means is call for the spiritual leaders of your church, ask them to come to you, they anoint you with oil and they pray in the name of the Lord. Now these weren't professional healers who went around having these big meetings. It was a situation where they called for their local church leaders to come and and to uh, pray for them privately. 
This implies that you should be a member of a local church. In New Testament times, there was no such thing as this floating Christian who would listen to Christian radio or TV and float from this church to this church to this church. Every believer in the New Testament belonged to a specific body of believers. It was a local church. And and one reason is so you know who to call when you have trouble. Part of the reason God wants you to be in the church is we're a family and, and you don't have to... To, to testify this, but every one of us here has some type of screwed up somebody in our family, maybe a whole bunch of screwed up people in our families. And, and God says, I want to, I want to make a new family for you where you have brothers and sisters that are closer to you than, than your physical family because the spiritual family will actually outlive the physical family. There's not marriage in heaven. I'm not going to be married to Janie in heaven. I'll see her there. But my spiritual family is going to outlast my physical family. So that's what this is. We have this spiritual family. And part of why why God wants you to be a member of a body of believers is so that when others need help, you can help them. When you need help, they can help you. It just makes sense. Now, notice that it says that the, um, the sick person takes the initiative. If you don't call the spiritual leaders of your church and let them know, how are they going to know? People all the time get mad at preachers. That preacher didn't come. I hear it all the time. Now, this church has been great because we've said from the beginning, I can't do it all, don't want to do it all, don't want to be the only leader in the church. I don't want that. And so we've been really good about that. We've tried to divide this up into small groups. And small group leaders go and they they see people. And people in small groups fix meals for the folks in their small group. So if you refuse to be a member of a church and you refuse to be a member of a small group, don't get mad if nobody comes and sees you because they don't even know you're sick. That's about stupid to me. I'm going to sit over here and I'm going to get mad at you because you didn't come see me. I know of a pastor that spends about an hour a week on sermon preparation and about 50 to 60 hours a week visiting every nursing home, every hospital. He doesn't see his kids' games. He doesn't have meals with his family because he's running around doing the work that the body of Christ should be doing. Sick person takes the initiative, and and sick means a life-threatening illness. Now, oil is just a symbol in the New Testament. And if you read through the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. Um, These people weren't dumb enough to think that one type of oil healed every disease. A lot of people say that. Well, they thought it was medicinal. Well, sure, it's medicinal in some purposes. And, and I've been in places where folks have said, you know, well, they've called for the elders of the church, and they want us to come and, and pray over them. What kind of oil do we use? And and I've actually sat around in debates. Well, what kind of oil should we use? It doesn't matter. Use 1040 motor oil. Chainsaw bar oil. It does not matter because the oil is a symbol. Now, you don't want to use used oil because that could be kind of gross. But olive oil was the most prevalent thing. And so when I've been around people, most people use olive oil just because that's probably what it would... It doesn't matter what kind of oil because you're symbolizing the presence of the Holy Spirit. Symbols are throughout the New Testament. When we baptize someone out there, the water symbolizes a burial. When we take the Lord's Supper, the the bread symbolizes the body of Christ. When we take the juice, the juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. Symbols are all throughout the Scripture. And when you use oil, it's just a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter who's praying, who's doing the anointing. There is nothing magical about the anointing. There's no holy oil. What matters is that God hears. What matters is not even the person praying. The mat- what matters is who you are praying to. I can pray to this music stand. I don't think it's going to do much good. 
but I can pray to God who has all power. And in Ephesians, it says the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's, that's powerful, is available to people who follow Christ. And it says that we're to pray in the name of the Lord. God is the healer. The name of the Lord represents the character of God. All healing is based on God's character. And notice in verse 15 what it says. And the prayer that is said with faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will heal that person. And if the person has sinned, the sins will be forgiven. Now, I've, I've gone to hospitals, I've gone to homes, and I've done this in private ceremonies. And sometimes people get well, sometimes people die. We just try to do what the Bible says. If it says to do it, we do it, and we leave the results up to God. And we're going to give Him the glory whether the person is healed or whether they die. Um, one of my favorite songs is Home Free by Wayne Watson. Wayne Watson lives in Houston. He's a, he's a Christian who, who records, um, he's a Christian music artist. And this song is all about, he, he watched a friend in his neighborhood, a member of his church in his small group, die. She was in her 30s. She had three small children. She died of cancer. They had prayed over her. They had asked for God to heal her, and she died. And he was hacked off at God as he was driving home. He has a recording studio in his home, and he said as he pulled into the driveway in his home, God began to, to reveal something to him, and, and the revelation was, I did heal her permanently. And so he goes into his, his music studio and he records this song and he talks about, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trying hard not to think you unkind. But if you know my heart, surely you can read my mind. Good people underneath a load of grief, some get up and walk away and he says, some find ultimate relief. And then the, the chorus is home free. And God released in him this idea that, that she was healed forever when she went to heaven. I don't know why God heals some people and he doesn't heal others. There is a purpose in that. But we do all of this in private. We, we leave the results up to God. The third reason you're supposed to pray is when I'm hurting spiritually. Verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. A lot of people in Jesus' day and even today believe that if you're sick, that it is a result of sin. Um, and And supposedly you've got hidden sin and if you'll confess it, you'll get well. And if, if you confess it and you don't get well, that means there's other hidden secret sin and, and you need to really search. And sometimes that's true. But some, Jesus said in, in John 9 that the blind man was born, for the, born blind for the glory of God. So he blew that out of the water that all people are suffering because of sin. But there are instances where if I don't follow God's word, it's going to allow things to come into my life. If I don't eat right and exercise, yesterday um, my brother-in-law prayed for the meal, and dude, we had food everywhere. And when we got finished, I said, "You think God's really going to bless this meal to the nourishment of our bodies?" And we all laughed, said, "Probably not." Oh, God, bless these Twinkies and these Cheerios and these Cheetos to the nourishment of my body. God doesn't do that. If we don't follow principles of diet and exercise, and then I go out and run with a bunch of yahoos half my age and I pull a muscle, that's my fault, not God's fault. I actually pulled two muscles, two hamstrings. I had them both iced down last week because I am old and stupid. We live in this world, and it's, it's a fallen, sinful world, and the reality is sometimes our choices do mess up our bodies. If we don't listen to God where, where the Bible says, don't be anxious for anything, and, and we get all worried and, and we get this stress and we develop an ulcer. Well, the reason we develop an ulcer is because we weren't listening to God. Um, if we become bitter and resentful, 
And we let that boil. Have you seen the person that's been bitter for a long time? They've really practiced it. They're like perfecting bitterness. They look like they've been in formaldehyde. And, and they're walking death. And they're no fun to be around. The doctors oftentimes tell us it's more what's eating us, the, the bitterness and resentment on the inside, than, than what we've been eating that, that causes problems. So we can bring sickness on ourselves because we don't follow God, because we choose to sin. And, and what the Bible says is that we're supposed to pray to God. And people say, well, why isn't everybody healed? I don't know. But sometimes there's a purpose in your sickness. Maybe it's brought on by you, but maybe God allowed it. Paul, when he wrote the, the second letter to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says, I prayed to the Lord three times. We don't know what his deal was, but there was something that was just causing serious physical problems in Paul's life. And he said, I prayed three times that God would remove it. He would heal me. And three times God said, what? No. This sickness is for my glory. And he said, my grace is, is strong enough for you. And, and the Bible says that, that whatever, whether God's going to heal you or not, the, the, the condition for um, healing is confession. As I confess what is going on in my life. What, what happens though is a lot of us would rather camouflage our sin. We would rather um, conceal it than confess it. And, and there is something so liberating in finding someone that you can talk to and you can, you can tell them your deepest, darkest secrets and they will love you and accept you regardless of what's going on in your life. Whenever somebody tells me, they say, I've never told anyone this before. I've never, I, w I wouldn't dare tell anyone in the world this. My ears perk up and, and I start to think, God, you must be working in their life. Something good is about to happen. Because there is freedom when you confess something and you quit bearing that burden alone and you quit pretending and wearing a mask, pretending that you're perfect and someone loves you anyway, there is freedom in that. And that's what the church is about. That's the New Testament church. And Acts 2, biblically functioning community, is we love everybody regardless of their past. We don't try to change people. That's God's job. We love you. Sinners are welcome here. Oh, you go to that church? Yes, I do. And I think Jesus does too. That's right. And when I'm bitter, I say, I don't think He comes to your church. And then I get sick. I'm kidding. I don't say that. But I think Jesus wants to be a place where, where people reflect His love. Who do you hang out with? Sinners! What should our churches be made up of? Sinners. And they are. We just pretend that we're not. Man, when you, confession is good for the soul. Now does that mean I get up and I confess in front of the church? Oh, heavens no. There is a principle in confession. If my sin is a secret sin, I confess it to God, just between me and God. Now, that's with this condition. If my secret sin is habitual, and I keep doing it over and over, just confessing it to God is not enough. That's what this verse is talking about. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The revealing of feelings is the beginning of healing. Kind of cute. What that means is, Sometimes you do not get well from habitual sin without a group of men if you're a man, women if you're a woman. Don't, don't ever make your accountability someone of the opposite sex. It doesn't work to have your spouse as your accountability partner. I have the best spouse in the world and she's not my accountability partner. That's just stupid. You have somebody of the same sex, somebody who doesn't mind saying, you're stupid. Why? 
And you start pouring out your heart and, and, and they, they're going to tell you the truth. Well, dude, you're the problem. Look in the mirror. Quit griping about your wife. What have you done? And it, you don't do it in an ugly way. But you do it in a way that, that they say, oh, man. But you love them. And you confess. And, and the principle is, if it's just between me and God, I confess it to God. If it's between me and you, if I have a problem with Jeff, the Bible says I go to Jeff. And when you sin is when you go to six other people before you go to Jeff. If you even go to Jeff, that's wrong. I go to, but if your sin affects the church, you're supposed to stand up in front of the church and confess that. And actually, if you won't quit, if your sin affects the whole church and you won't quit, you know what we're supposed to do? Kick you out of the church. And we will do it. Not because we think we're better than you, but because we're going to do what God says and we're going to leave the results up to Him. And, and if you've been here any length of time, you know we've had people do things that affected the whole church. And they have stood here and confessed their sin. And one of the things I'm, I'm most thankful about for our church is that when folks have stood up here and confessed sexual sin and asked for forgiveness, this church swallowed them up in love. I've never seen that in my life in any church I've ever been in. We haven't kicked anybody out of the church yet because they confess and you forgive them. And when they get right with God and they get right with us, we love them and we say, yeah, they're a member. And we don't, we don't talk about it anymore. So the principle is, if it's, if it's between me and God, I confess to God. If it's between me and you, I confess to you and to God. If it's between me and the whole church, I confess to God, I confess to the whole church, and I ask for forgiveness. And when we do that right, God does some amazing things. If you don't have somebody that you can trust, that you can uh, confide in, you're to be pitied beyond any human being. Pray that God will bring you someone immediately. There's a verse in Job that says, a man needs his friends most when he's doubting God. He needs someone to stand with him, to love him, to pray for him, to challenge him, and to walk with him through this journey of the valley of the shadow of death until he comes back. Because once you've walked through the valley of shadow of death, you become a stronger believer. Doubt is not a bad thing if you allow it to, to lead you to God. Questions are not a bad thing. I've not found a question yet that can't be answered through God's Word, through a promise in God's Word. Now, you may not know why your loved one died. God may not answer that until heaven, but God has a purpose in everything. Now, who can pray? Ordinary people. Some people think that you got to be the super spiritual saint. And we joke, you know, when a lot of times if I'm at somebody's house and it's time to pray for the meal, oh, let's let the pastor pray. Because I'm like some professional prayer. And I say, I get paid to pray. I, I'm a professional. I'm joking. There's nothing different in my prayers than your prayers. The, the, the whole issue is how close are you to God? A lot of Christians think they're inferior. Well, James uses this really cool illustration. And, and I've, I've got it. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, let me read this and then we'll talk about the story. Verse 17. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall. None fell for the next three and a half years. Then he prayed for rain and down it poured. The grass turned green and the crops began to grow again. All right, here's the deal. Way back in Kings, first Kings, in the Old Testament, Kings refers to kings of Israel. 
And there's a book called Second Kings, and it refers to kings of Israel. All right, you with me? So it goes through the history of the kings of Israel. When you get to chapter 16, there's a king that comes uh, in, in on the scene. His name is Ahab. And all you really need to know about Ahab, he's remembered for two things. Number one, the Bible says in verse 33 of chapter 16 that Ahab did more to provoke God to anger than any of the kings before him. He, he's pretty pretty infamous for that. And, and so if you read, it says that he did more evil and provoked God to anger more than any king before him. So that's the first reason Ahab's remembered. The second reason Ahab is remembered is his queen. Anybody, anybody just off the top of your head know the queen? Jezebel. And that is not a good name. If somebody calls you Jezebel, they are going back to the Old Testament and they are saying that you are the worst woman on the face of the planet. You should be offended if somebody calls you Jezebel. Jezebel helped introduce or reintroduce idol worship in Israel. Israel was the chosen people of God and she brought in specifically two, um, two gods, lowercase g. Baal, this is really perverted to me. Baal is, is like, he, he's the equivalent of the Greek mythology of Zeus. So he's like the, the father of heaven. So he's supposed to be the equal of Jehovah, the, the, the God that Israel served, but he's like this equal. What's really bizarre to me is Asherah was the other, she was the goddess and she's supposed to be like Mother Earth and she's supposed to like had 70 other gods, lowercase g, that, that people worshiped. And what's really, really bizarre about the whole thing is then Baal and Asherah get together. So like he, he marries his mama and it's just weird. It's just weird. But what they would do is they would set up these altars and Baal was like, you know, this god of fertility and, and Asherah and, you know, they would have all kinds of weird stuff. So they would set up these altars and God said, first, first, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so what do the Israelites do? They set up gods. They make them. And by the way, if, if you're worshiping anything that you can make, you're shooting really low for your God. I, I need a God who's more powerful than me. And, and I figure out, you know, if I sculpt something out of wood, about the only thing I can do with it is set it on fire. Might give me a little bit of warmth. Okay, you with me? So they set up these, this idol worship. And uh, as a result of that, God calls Elijah, who's a prophet, and Elijah says, it will not rain, because God told him, it will not rain for three and a half years. And so it didn't. And you can just imagine, if it doesn't rain for three and a half years, what are your crops like? They die. What, do you, what happens to your lakes and your streams? They die. And so Elijah, rather than saying he's the sinner, I mean, not Elijah, Ahab said, rather than saying he's the sinner, he said, it's that wicked Elijah. It's that praying man. He's the reason we have no crops. And Elijah's like, dude, really? It's not me, it's you. So then Elijah comes back after three and a half years and, and he prays and he says, it's going to rain today. So since they've set up all of these, these altars to worship, there are 450 prophets of Baal. There are 400 prophets of uh, Asherah. Put those together, how many you got? 850, okay. 850 false prophets. And so Elijah comes up with this really cool plan. And he says, um, let's have a God contest. 
And so he's, he's up on Mount Carmel and he's talking to all these people and he says, let's have a God contest. Let's get all of the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah. And, and let's, what they did in the Old Testament to please their gods was they would sacrifice animals. Now we know in the Israelites, it wasn't to please God, it was as a payment for sin. And, and the sacrifices that the Israelites did, they, they spread the blood on the altar and the, and the blood had to be shed so that the, the forgiveness of sins could happen. And all it was for the Israelites was a foreshadowing of when Jesus was going to come and pour out His blood. That's why the Israelites no longer, if they follow Christ, they no longer have sacrifices. Jesus paid the price. But in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices. So these people were very familiar with this. And so uh, Elijah says, let's have a contest. Let's set up two altars, an altar here, an altar here. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. And see, what they would do is they would light the fire. They'd build the altar. They would, they would sacrifice the animal. They'd put the animal up there. And then they would light the wood and they would burn. And supposedly, you know, this smoke and the offering would go to the gods and the gods would be pleased. He said, but there's a twist. I'll set mine up. You set yours up. But let's not light the fire. Let's call upon our gods. You call on your gods, and there's like 72 of them, and I'll call on my God, there's only one, and whichever God answers and lights the sacrifice by fire supernaturally, we'll figure He's got the power. And all the people went, that's a really good idea. And, and Elijah, being, being a nice um, uh, person to get along with, he said, you go first. So they're like, sure. And they build up their altar and they do all their stuff. And for hours, the Bible says for hours. You need to read this. Start in, in chapter 16 when it mentions Ahab in, in 1 Kings and go all the way through chapter 19. And so for hours, they're dancing around, calling out. And it says they cut themselves, you know. And, and Elijah starts talking some serious trash. And Elijah says, maybe he can't hear you. And so the Bible says, they get louder. Oh! You know, they're calling out. And nothing happens. And he says, maybe he's busy. And they yell louder. And, and if you look at the literal translation, this is, this is so cool. He says, maybe he's on the toilet. He's preoccupied. Just talking smack. I love Elijah. And so nothing happens. Six hours this goes on. Now if you go to a show and nothing happens for six hours, are you still going to be there? Not me, I'll give you about six minutes and I'm gone. So Elijah, after six hours, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, at the time that they would do their sacrifice, the Israelites knew this, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah calls out and he goes, y'all ready for some action? Come here. So all the people, I can just see them running over, you know. These, these guys are nuts. So they come to, to Elijah. He builds the altar, does it exactly like the Bible says. He puts 12 stones down one for each of the tribes of Israel. He puts the sacrifice on top. He sheds the blood. He puts the wood there. And then he does something any sane person would never do if you're trying to start a fire. He says, go get some buckets of water and pour it on top. They keep pouring it on so much that the sacrifice is soaked, the wood is soaked, and there was a trench that, that Elijah dug around the altar. And the Bible says that it filled the trench up to the top with water. Now, if you're, if you're a rational person, you're going, there's no way. Mm -mm. I don't know much about fire, but I know you don't pour water on what you want to light. And Elijah, then he says, cool prayer. And this is kind of a model for what we need to do. He says, oh, Lord God, I call upon you and I ask you to light this fire to prove that you are the one true God and I am your servant. 
and that I've done all of these things because you've said to. Was there any self-glorification going on with Elijah? Not a bit. And it says that lightning came, lit up the fire, burned up the sacrifice, and dried the trench. It was so hot. That's some supernatural fire. And you know what the people did? The Lord, He is God! It says they hit their face and they, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Scared them to death. We think we'll follow that one. And then this amazing thing happens. Elijah gathers all the prophets, 850 of them, and kills them. Because in the Old Testament, that was the penalty for being a false prophet. You had to be real careful in those days saying, God said to do this, because if God didn't say it, then you died. They killed them all. And you'd think that Elijah would have had this great victory. And you come to chapter 19, you read the first 10 verses of chapter 19 in 1 Kings. And Jezebel. Ahab goes back and he says, you won't believe what happened. That wicked, He's still blaming Elijah. That wicked Elijah. He did this and he killed all of our prophets. And Jezebel hacked off and she said, send him a message that by this time tomorrow, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if you're not like one of the prophets you killed. Elijah just killed 850 men. Bring it on. That's what you'd expect. He runs. He runs away, runs completely across the desert, sits down under a tree, sweating, tired, and he goes, oh God, if this is good, how it's going to be, just kill me. He prays and asks God to take his life. In the first ten chapters, he shows fear, anger, resentment, bitterness, loneliness. You know who he sounds like? Us. If you've ever showed fear, anger, resentment, bitterness, anger, loneliness... You're an average person. You're normal. And you understand why the Bible says Elijah was a human just as we are. Just like us. So average people, the whole message of Elijah's life is that you don't have to be perfect to pray. Because if it was only perfect prayers that God answered, how many prayers would get answered? None. Alright, so let's finish this up. How should I pray? If you and I are just like Elijah, how can we pray effectively right now? Four conditions. Number one, I must ask. Now, this sounds really stupid, but a lot of times people want God to do something they've never asked Him. Or they've said, Oh, God, bless me. How do you know when that's been answered or not answered? The more specifically you pray, the more specifically God answers. And if you want to get good at prayer... You start keeping a journal and you put down the date you pray for something, the date God answers. Because then the next time you're in a dry spell, you go back in your notebook and you begin to look. God answered this prayer. God answered it. Wow. God answered a lot of prayer. I think God can be trusted. Pray specifically. God answers specifically. Oh, God, bless us this day. How do you know? So you got to ask. Second thing is you have to have the right motive. A few weeks ago, we looked at James chapter 2 and it says you have not because you ask not. Or when you ask, the only reason you ask is so that you can spend it on your selfish self. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend whatever you get on your pleasures. 
you got to make sure your motives are right. And what is a good motive? The glory of God. you got to have a clean life. It says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. Now, righteous just means you're standing before God. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are righteous before God because Jesus is perfect, not because you are perfect. And the condition of our praying is being related to God in the first place through Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with perfection. Psalm 66, 18, David is praying. He said, if I had ignored my sins, the Lord would not have listened to me. If I am willfully and knowingly committing sin, living in sin, and I say to God, God, I'm going to keep on living, doing stuff that I know is not right before you, but by the way, would you bless me? Do you know what the answer is? No. God doesn't work that way. Isaiah 59, 2 says, It's because of your sins that He does not hear you, He being God. It is your sins that separate you from God when you try to worship Him. So you've got to at least make an effort to come to God and say, God, cleanse me from my sin. And then the last thing is to ask in faith. you got to expect an answer. Way back in the first chapter of James, it says, But when you ask Him, be sure that you really expect Him to answer, for a doubtful mind is as unsettled as waves of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And if we go on, it says, Let not that man or woman expect anything from God. You gotta ask in faith. You gotta believe that God loves you and He is the perfect parent and He wants to do what's right for you, what's best for you. If you trust Him, then He begins to answer and do some amazing things in your life.